We are continuing this morning with our series on heaven and hell. Uh, This is the third week, and this is going to be the hardest week of the four weeks on heaven and hell, uh, because this is the week that we are talking specifically about hell. Uh, It's not a topic that anybody likes to talk about, uh, especially as a pastor to stand up and give a sermon on the topic of hell. Uh, Maybe that you're here for the first time, and uh, if you are... I want to tell you, we are in week three of a four-week series. So my encouragement to you is go back and listen to weeks one and two on our website. Also, you'll want to listen to week four because, again, next week we're going to delve into some of the issues related to the fairness and justice of God when we talk about heaven and hell. Uh, But in order to get there, we're going to delve a little bit this morning into what does the Scripture say on the topic of hell? Now, despite not enjoying the topic, all week I kept thinking to not talk about it at all, like just to skip, you know, we could skip from what is heaven all the way to week four, uh, would be a sort of pastoral malpractice, in my opinion. Uh, And what I mean by that is, you know, imagine you go to the doctor for your yearly physical and he runs tests and he takes blood work and he finds out that you have cancer and it's serious and you're going to die. But he takes those results and he puts them in a file and he doesn't tell you because he doesn't want to hurt your feelings, right? You'd be furious. That would be malpractice. Nobody likes to hear that they have cancer, but the only way to treat the disease is to know that it exists. Now, in this metaphor, actually, hell itself is not the cancer. The cancer is sin, right? The cancer is disobedience to God. Hell is the death that all are headed for apart from the intervention of God. All right, so that's what we're going to talk about this morning. Uh, And despite the reality that we don't talk about it a lot, if you look at statistics on a national level, the truth is that most people actually believe in hell, even if they don't talk about it a lot. I ran across a study from CBS News from three or four years ago, 2014, And they found that 77% of Americans believe in heaven, right? 77% believe in heaven. 66% believe in both heaven and hell, right? So there is a percentage of people that say, I believe in heaven, but I don't believe in hell. But the other way to look at that uh, survey is to say, actually, 66% of Americans believe in both, believe that there is a heaven and there is a hell. Now, when you dig a little deeper into the numbers, you also find, though, uh, only 2% of those who believe in heaven and hell think they're going to hell, right? So the vast majority would say, now, I believe in heaven and I believe in a hell, but hell is not where I'm headed. Hell is for people worse than I am, for other people. 82% would say they're going to heaven, and I guess the other 16% say beats me. I don't know where I'm headed. All right, so the reality is that most people believe in both, right? And, And every so often, the subject of heaven and hell, and the subject of hell in particular, kind of makes its way to the forefront of our culture, in fact. Some of you will remember in 2011, when Osama bin Laden was killed, Uh, The politician and former pastor, Mike Huckabee, sent out a statement. And you remember what his statement said? Welcome to hell, OBL, right? Osama bin Laden. And in fact, there were people outside the White House rejoicing, holding signs that said, welcome to hell, Osama bin Laden, and rejoicing the fact that he was facing 
judgment. Now, what was interesting was right around the same time, another pastor, a well-known pastor by the name of Rob Bell, wrote a book, and the book was called Love Wins. And the, the thesis of his book was this, that history is not tragic, hell is not forever, and love in the end wins, and all will be reconciled to God. So in other words, uh, Rob Bell at the same time wrote this book that essentially said nobody ends up in hell forever, right? And I thought this was an interesting juxtaposition because on the one hand, you have the death and presumably the judgment of one of the worst terrorists of our time, a mass murderer, and people say he deserves judgment. But on the other hand, you have a Christian pastor saying, no, maybe he doesn't deserve eternal judgment. Right? And so it raised these questions, even in my mind, uh, would heaven be heaven if an unrepentant Osama bin Laden were there? Is there a place for judgment? Right? I, I mentioned a few weeks ago uh, the popular television show, The Good Place. Uh, the Good Place is also a show that explores what is heaven, what is hell, who goes to which place. Right, so despite the fact that we don't like to talk about it a whole lot in church, it comes up in our culture. Uh, every time I preach on the topic of hell, there are a few people that say, you know what, I've been in church my entire life and I've never heard a sermon on hell. Right? Many say, you know what, I've been in evangelical, Bible-believing churches my whole life and, and they've never talked about hell. Now, it didn't always used to be that way. In fact, uh, the most famous sermon probably in American history was a sermon preached in 1741, almost 300 years ago, by Jonathan Edwards, the famous Puritan pastor. Some of you uh, had to read this sermon in high school or junior high literature class, and you scratched your heads, and the, the teacher may have talked about it and said, what is going on with what he's saying? Let me read portions of his sermon. It's called Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. This is Jonathan Edwards. He says, The God that holds you over the pit of hell, much as one holds a spider or some loathsome insect over the fire, abhors you and is dreadfully provoked. His wrath towards you burns like fire. He looks upon you as worthy of nothing else but to be cast into the fire. He is of purer eyes than to bear to have you in his sight. You are 10,000 times more abominable in his eyes than the most hateful, venomous serpent is in ours. You have offended him infinitely more than ever a stubborn rebel did his prince, and yet it is nothing but his hand that holds you from falling into the fire every moment. It is to be ascribed to nothing else that you did not go to hell last night, that you were suffered to awake again in this world after you closed your eyes to sleep. And there's no other reason to be given why you have not dropped into hell since you arose in the morning but that God's hand has held you up. There's no other reason to be given why you have not gone to hell since you have sat here in the house of God, provoking his pure eyes by your sinful, wicked manner of attending his solemn worship. Yea, there is nothing else that is to be given as a reason why you do not this very moment drop down into hell. O sinner, consider the fearful danger you are in. It is a great furnace of wrath, a wide and bottomless pit, full of the fire of wrath that you are held over in the hand of that God whose wrath is provoked and incensed as much against you as against many of the damned in hell. You hang by a slender thread. And he goes on and says, nothing that you have ever done Nothing that you can do can induce God to spare you one moment. Now, for better or worse, we don't hear sermons like that in church anymore. Right? And so we read that and we scratch our heads and we go, wow, that is some very tough stuff to listen to. 
right? And, and again, for better or worse, that's not going to be the, the uh, overall tone of the sermon this morning. Now, granted, this is not going to be like many of my sermons. There aren't going to be a lot of jokes this morning, just so you know. Okay, but what we are going to talk about is what does the scripture say on the topic of hell? Okay, there's a couple of questions that I want to answer as we move forward this morning. All right, the first one is this. What does the Bible tell us about hell? Right, like I said, I think we need to talk about it because the scripture actually talks about it a lot. It may surprise you, it may not surprise you to know, Jesus actually talks about hell quite a lot. Jesus talked about hell several times throughout the gospel narrative. So we want to look at what does the Bible tell us and then how do we respond to the doctrine of hell? Okay, and where we're going to land, and this probably won't surprise you, is that understanding heaven and hell and what the scripture says about it is going to provide a greater urgency to our lives when we think about sharing the good news of eternal life in Jesus Christ, right? Because if heaven and hell are real, and I believe the scripture says they are, then what that means is that God has provided one way to have eternal life and to avoid the reality of hell, and that is through faith in Jesus Christ. A few years ago, I ran across a video by Penn Gillette, the famous magician. Uh, He happens to be an atheist. He doesn't believe in God at all. But he told this story about being, I think, at an airport or a show or something like that. And a guy came up and began to try to share the gospel with him, to tell him about Jesus. And he said, you know, some people would ask me, he said, look, some people would ask me, uh, are you offended by that when a Christian tries to tell you what they believe? And he says, no, I'm not offended by that at all. He said, in fact, I'm offended by Christians who don't try to tell me what they believe. Because he said, look, I don't believe any of this stuff, but at some level, if you really believe in heaven and hell, you believe those are real places, then at some point to not tell me is an act of cruelty. And that's coming from an atheist man. All right, so as we talk about heaven and hell, that's what we're going to talk about this morning. What does the Bible tell us and how do we respond to the doctrine of hell? So let's begin with this question. What does the Bible say about hell? All right, the first point I want to make is this, that scripturally, hell is just, right? Hell is just. What I mean by just is not the same as fairness. And again, we're going to talk about this in more detail next week. Next week's sermon is all about, is God unfair or is God unjust, all right? But, but justice and fairness are not quite the same thing. Here's what I mean. By fairness, I mean, look, everybody gets the same thing, right? So if you have a birthday cake, or, or some sort of treat at your house. All of you have experienced this. You begin to cut it up, right? And what's the first thing one of the kids is going to say when they take their piece and they compare it to the other kid's piece? Not fair, right? So my dad did a deal. Some of your, your dads or moms may have done this where one of us would cut the cake and the other would choose their piece, right? And the person cutting the cake was very, very careful to make sure it was exactly equal right? Because we were looking for fairness. Everybody treated the same. Okay, but the scripture actually never promises that God treats everybody the same. In fact, you look at Matthew chapter 20, there's an interesting parable about a landowner. You may remember this, and the landowner hires people throughout the course of the day, right? He hires some people early in the morning, some people midday, some people later in the afternoon. In fact, he hires some people an hour before quitting time, and he pays them all the same. Right? And, and the first guys, they go, hey, that's not fair, right? That's not fair. We worked all day long. We should get more. And he said, no, no, no. 
you got what you agreed, we agreed upon, right? You got what we agreed upon. I can give more to others if I want to. Okay, now, he wasn't being unjust, but we would say he was being unfair, right? When we talk about justice, here's what we mean, that God always does what is right and always accords punishment and judgment correctly. Okay, so as we look at the doctrine of hell in the Scripture, here's what we see, that hell is always viewed as a just and righteous punishment for those who have sinned against God and rejected God. Right? In other words, nobody will be able to stand before God and say, your judgment is wrong. You didn't judge correctly. We struggle, I think, often with the concept of punishment, right? Because when, when you say, hey, look, my, my kid sassed or hit their sister and I had to punish them, often what we really mean is what? We mean I had to discipline, right? I had to correct, right? So, so you spank them or you give them time out or whatever it may be. The reality is what you're going for is discipline. You want to correct and to train. But there is also a place for punishment, okay? In fact, when we look at the doctrine of hell biblically, Matthew 25, talking about those who will go to hell, it says these will go away into eternal, what? Punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Here's, when I think about punishment, here's what I mean. Some of you perhaps have followed the story, big national story this week about a doctor at Michigan State who abused a number of young women, right? Over many, many, many years. And he was sentenced effectively to a life sentence. He will never get out. It amounts to multiple life sentences. Now, some of you, when you read that, you thought, yeah, that's right, didn't you? That's the right thing that should happen, right? There's no corrective element. The goal here for that person is not that he one day gets out and lives a productive life again. It's punitive and it's also protective so that the rest of society does not interact with him anymore and there is punishment for the terrible crimes that he's committed, right? When we look at hell biblically, it is punitive, right? And and that doesn't sit easily with us. Obviously, you can tell 300 years ago in the day of Jonathan Edwards, it sat much more easily with our culture. But we have a hard time with that concept. And yet biblically, as we look at the doctrine of hell. What we see is that it is punishment for those who have committed the crime of rejecting the one who made them. You know, on the, on the flip side, my guess is that there have been times where you have watched the news and you've seen somebody who's committed a heinous crime and you felt their punishment wasn't enough, right? perhaps a murderer, perhaps an abuser, perhaps somebody violent, and they got what you viewed as a slap on the wrist and something in you said, no, that's not right. That's not what? That's not justice. Okay, when we look at the scripture and what it says about the doctrine of hell, this is from Thessalonians. For after all, it is only just for God to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to give relief to you who are afflicted And to us as well, when the Lord Jesus will be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, dealing out retribution to those who do not know God and to those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus, these will pay the penalty of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. That's 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. Paul says that there is a real and eternal 
punishment. And as you read through the New Testament, and we're going to talk about this more as we go on, here's what we see when you look at Romans 1. Because we're going to talk more again next week about, again, the justice of God. But one of the things that we see when we look at passages like Romans 1 is that Paul says, you know what? God is always, always, always calling out. It says his eternal power and his divine nature are seen clearly in creation so that men are without excuse. And yet in the heart of mankind, there is always this desire to say, no, God, no, God, I don't want you. I don't want your rulership over my life. So that biblically what we see is that hell is a just punishment for those who continue to say, no, I don't want to know God. I don't want to be with God. And so hell becomes punitive justice as well as the consequences biblically of that decision. All right, so hell is just. Secondly, as we walk through the scripture, we also see that hell is eternal. Hell is eternal. This particular aspect of the biblical doctrine of hell is one of the most difficult to uh, figure out and one of the most difficult to deal with. Uh, Theologian Clark Pinnock, he says this, I consider the concept of hell as endless torment in body and mind, an outrageous doctrine, a theological and moral enormity, a bad doctrine of the tradition, which needs to be changed. How can Christians possibly project a deity of such cruelty and vindictiveness whose ways include inflicting everlasting torture upon his creatures, however sinful they may have been? Surely a God who would do such a thing is more nearly like Satan than like God, at least by any moral standards. Now, I read that not because I agree with him, but because I thought it was interesting. He speaks with language just as forceful as we heard Jonathan Edwards talk about hell a few minutes ago, right? And, and Clark Pinnock's point is, now this is a bad doctrine. It needs to be changed. And he starts, where does he start? He starts from his idea of who God is. Right, and remember a couple of weeks ago when we talked about life after death, one of the things that we said is we want to begin with who does God say he is? rather than who do I say that God should be. There are godly men and women who hold differing views on the duration of hell. Right? But, but, but as I have looked at the scripture, I find it hard to escape the conclusion that, that the scripture says hell is an eternal, everlasting punishment. A couple of passages I want to show you this morning. Revelation chapter 20. This is uh, after the return of Jesus And the judgment at the very end of time, he says, and the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and brimstone where the beast and the false prophet are also. And they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Then it goes on and says, then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Of fire. The reason I show you that is, is to notice the juxtaposition. Hell and the lake of fire were actually made for Satan and his angels. Right? They weren't made for people. But there are those who align with Satan and continue to align with Satan and continue to reject God who go into the same lake of fire. Right? And as it describes the eternal torment of the devil 
and his angels. It's hard to escape biblically the conclusion that the same fate awaits men and women whose names are not written in the book of life. Jesus, in Matthew chapter 25, we read this passage a moment ago. Notice he says, the wicked will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. There's a parallel structure here, right? There, there is a theology, it's called annihilationism. Annihilationism basically argues that hell is not really eternal. In other words, that those who have rejected Jesus will go to hell for a period of time. They will be punished in proportion with their sins on the earth, and then they'll, they'll be annihilated. They'll feel nothing else. They'll fun- functionally disappear. The challenge with that, right, as I, as I read the arguments for it, there, there are times I go, man, I wish that I could make a good scriptural case for that position. But I look at a passage like this and I go, okay, I, I can't argue when it says eternal life that eternal life ends. So it's hard to argue that eternal punishment ends as well. Okay, so as we look, and, and, and let me say this, even if you hold an annihilationist view, it's still terrible. It's still terrible. The reality that there would be some separated from the life of God forever. So as we look at the biblical doctrine of hell, again, we see it's just. Secondly, it's eternal. Thirdly, as I just said, it's, it's terrible. It's a place that nobody would want to go. I don't know how many of you ever used to read the Gary Larson comic, The Far Side. Uh, it used to be one of my favorite comic strips. But one of his favorite subjects to draw besides cows was hell, right? So he drew a lot of animal cartoons, but he also drew a lot of cartoons about hell. And his depiction of hell was always a bit comical, right? So the coffee was cold, or you had to listen to accordion music all day long, or you had to do aerobic exercises all the time. Right? And so there are all these sort of, you know, it's, it's not a good place, and it's all the things you don't like on the earth, right? Even the, the television show I mentioned earlier, The Good Place, that's kind of their conception of hell. It's more annoying than agonizing, right? But, but as you look at the scripture, that, that's not really the way the scripture depicts hell at all. Gary Larson depicted it that way, in fact, because he didn't believe in it. He did not actually believe in heaven and hell. And so the concept was comical to him. But as you look at the scripture, uh, there's nothing comical about it. It's terrible. Remember a couple of weeks ago, we read from Luke chapter 16, the parable of the rich man and Lazarus. I want to show a portion of that passage again this morning. And I want you to note how many times in these few verses you see words that relate to pain and agony. It says, in Hades, the rich man lifted up his eyes, being in torment, And saw Abraham far away and Lazarus in his bosom. And he cried out and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus so that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool off my tongue for I am in agony in this flame. But Abraham said, child, remember that during your life, you received your good things and likewise Lazarus bad things. But now he is being comforted here and you are in agony. Now we could go on. And the rich man says, well, then send somebody to talk to my brothers so they don't have to come to this place of torment and agony. Over and over and over again, what we see is that it's a place of spiritual and psychological and physical pain, of separation from God. It's a terrible place. And as we mentioned earlier, made originally 
for the devil and his angels. Jesus said in Luke chapter 13, in that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth when you see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, but yourselves being thrown out. Now, a lot of times we read passages like that and we say, well, you know, aren't darkness and fire and those types of things, they're really just metaphors, right? There's not really going to be literal fire or darkness or whatever. And uh, Jonathan Edwards, interestingly, addressed this at one point. And he said, you know, they very well may be metaphors. We don't know. I mean, a lot in the scripture is metaphor because we've never been to heaven. We've never been to hell. We don't understand everything that goes on. But one of the things he points out is that the metaphors for heaven uh, tend to be that that what we're going to experience in heaven is actually even greater than the metaphors described. Right? So if it describes streets of gold, we imagine it's probably going to be even something more amazing than that. And he says, likewise with hell, if it describes fire and darkness, those are metaphors. But what is experienced is probably worse than the metaphor describes. Okay, so the reality is this is how Jesus, by the way, describes hell. And I want to make that point because often we think about Jesus as, as being pretty soft, Right? that primarily what he does is just kind of hug people, walk around with sheep. But the reality is that Jesus describes it as a place that nobody wants to be, that nobody was made to be. Okay, and that leads me, in fact, to our final point, and that is this. Hell is just, it's eternal, it's terrible. Fourthly, it's avoidable. It's avoidable. As we walk throughout the scripture, what we see is that the descriptions of hell and the discussion of hell are always tied to this concept that you don't have to go there. And nobody has to go there. That God is always calling out to say, turn and believe in me. And there is eternal life greater than you can imagine. I had a uh, professor in seminary that in talking about the prophets at one point, he made, a, he made a point that has always stuck with me. And he said this, you know, you read a book like Jonah, you remember, and, and Jonah was told to go to Nineveh. And Nineveh was this terrible place, violent, sexually immoral, idolatrous. He says, you go to Nineveh and I want you to preach that in 40 days, Nineveh is going to be overthrown. Just walk through the city and tell them in 40 days, Nineveh is going to be overthrown. Right? That is the Hebrew equivalent of you're cruising for a bruising, guys. Okay? Some of you have told your kids that. Right? Now, when you say that, when you say, hey, you're cruising for a bruising, son, what are you trying to say? It's not too late. Change your behavior right now. And you can turn around and we'll cruise for happiness together. Okay? But you are cruising for a bruising. When Jonah goes to Nineveh, And he says, 40 days and Nineveh will be overthrown. He never, notice, he never explicitly says, but if you repent and turn to God, you'll be saved. But the Ninevites understand that, don't they? And the thing that I remember this professor saying is, is he, he, he said, look, if God wanted them destroyed, he would just do it. Right, if God wanted them dead, he'd just do it like he did with Sodom and Gomorrah. But when he sends a warning, what's the purpose of the warning? To say, you don't have to experience that. 
Right? Some of you, again, you've had these conversations with your kids. You, you need to go somewhere. You need to do something. They need to do a chore, and they begin to resist, and you say, this can go the easy way or the hard way. Right? 80% of the time, kids choose the hard way, don't they? But you issue the warning because you say it doesn't have to be that way. All right, Peter, in, in 2 Peter chapter 3, he answers a question that many people have, and that is this, why has Jesus not yet come back? And here's what he says. The Lord is not slow about his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. He's waiting because he wants men from every tribe, every tongue, every people, every nation to know Jesus to worship around the throne of God. And so he waits and he waits. And Peter would say to him, a day is a thousand years and a thousand years is a day. God is exceedingly patient. And so every time we read the scripture and we hear about the doctrine of hell, we also want to proclaim the good news of the grace of Jesus Christ. Because what did God do? to bring men and women up out of the pit. He gave his son. Peter would also say this, for Christ also died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust, so that he might bring us to God. What often we forget is that hell is actually the just punishment for everybody. We all deserve it because we all deserve have rejected God. And yet in his grace, he gave Jesus. And he opens the door wide and he says, all who will trust in me can have life. You know, when you look at the early history of the Christian church and you look at the New Testament, this helps me to answer, why is it that the apostles worked so hard and went through so much persecution and turmoil to proclaim the gospel of Jesus? Why were they willing to face down the empire of Rome to preach this message? Why were they willing to face down even their Jewish brothers and sisters to preach this message even when they were told to stop because they believed they had a message that would rescue people from eternal separation from God. This was unbelievably good news that God stepped into history in Jesus Christ, his son, who died and took all of our sin on himself and then rose again and defeated death and defeated Satan and defeated sin and defeated hell. And all we have to do is say, I trust in him. In 2 Corinthians, Paul would say this, therefore we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him who, to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Paul says, this is my mission in life. We implore you to be reconciled to God. And so as we talk about the doctrine of hell, then we said we want to look at what does the scripture say it's like, but also how are we called to respond? And as I said, I think this increases the urgency with which we want to say if heaven and hell are real, then those we know, 
They need to hear the message. And certainly each person is responsible for how they respond to the message of the good news. But we're called to proclaim it. Um, I read uh, an excerpt at the beginning from uh, Jonathan Edwards' Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. Uh, But I I wanted to save toward close to the end, the the, the end of his sermon, because a lot of times we remember the the beginning, right? Because if you're in junior high literature, you probably just read the beginning, right? You stopped halfway through. Let me read the end. He says, and now you have an extraordinary opportunity, a day wherein Christ has thrown the door of mercy wide open and stands in calling and crying with a loud voice to poor sinners, a day wherein many are flocking to him and pressing into the kingdom of God. Many are daily coming from east, west, north, and south, many that were very lately in the same miserable condition that you are in are now in a happy state with their hearts filled with love to him who has loved them and washed them from their sins in his own blood and rejoicing in hope of the glory of God. How awful it is to be left behind at such a day, to see so many others feasting while you are pining and perishing, to see so many rejoicing and singing for joy of heart while you have cause to mourn for sorrow of heart and how for vexation of spirit. How can you rest one moment in such a condition? Are not your souls as precious as the souls of the people at Suffield? It's another city nearby where they're flocking from day to day to Christ. Jesus has thrown the door of mercy wide open. And he says, the day has come to receive his mercy and grace. So as we close, two questions I want to ask, and then one more brief story. First one is this, have you trusted in Jesus? As I mentioned earlier, it may be you're here for the first time, and you go, wow, I picked a doozy to visit. (laughs) But I think the Lord knew exactly when you were going to arrive. And it may be even right now that you, you feel the movement of the Spirit and you say, I want eternal life. Have you trusted in Jesus Christ alone to forgive you of your sin and provide you eternal life in him? Secondly, if you know him, will you be an ambassador of Jesus Christ, as Paul says, imploring those you know to be reconciled to God? Let me, let me offer one more quick story as we close. I ran across this news story more than 10 years ago now. This is from China. And uh, what happened, there was a, a bridge called the Zhuzhong Bridge in China. And one day there were three men in a truck driving along this bridge over a body of water. It was over a river. And as they drove along, there was a truck in front of them and it was foggy. It was early in the morning. And they watched as this truck disappeared into the fog and they said his, head, or his taillight suddenly vanished. They said, we couldn't see him anymore. And we thought, well, what happened? So we stopped the car. We were driving pretty slowly because it was foggy. We stopped the car. This is true. They said, we got out and we walked along the bridge to figure out what happened to this truck. And we realized at that point that we were about 20 feet from the spot where the whole bridge had collapsed. And that truck had just rolled right into the water. 
And so they said, what we did is we parked our car over on the side of the bridge and we stood out in the middle of the bridge and we waved at cars, stop, don't go any further. And over the course of the next couple of hours, until the police were able to get there and seal it off, they saved, they said, about eight vehicles that pulled over. There were other vehicles, they said, they they didn't believe us. They thought we were trying to rob them. And so they just kept going over the cliff and over the cliff. But they said, we could not stand and do nothing while people were going over the cliff. And so they stood in the middle of a busy road, looking like idiots, waving their arms to say, stop. And that's what Paul says when he says, we implore you, be reconciled to God. And that's why Jesus says, go into all the world, make disciples of all the nations, and teach them to obey what I command you. Because he is the way, he is the truth, and he is the life. Will we be ambassadors of the good news of Jesus Christ to say, be reconciled to God? Would you pray with me? Father, we are grateful for the morning. We are grateful to hear from your word. Lord, if there is somebody here this morning who does not yet know you through Jesus, I pray that they would trust you. Father, we're grateful that even in our sin and disobedience, you gave us life through Jesus. And I pray that we would faithfully represent him and faithfully proclaim him. Father, if we believe that your word is true, I pray we would live accordingly. We're thankful to be here. And we pray, go with us now through the power of your spirit and empower us for your service. And we pray all this in Jesus' name, amen. God bless you. Have a wonderful week.